0: It's okay if your programs are not at 90%. You know, like, it's okay if this year you plan to spend 70% on programs, if you can tell me why.
1: From Virtuous, I'm Noah Barnett, and this is the Responsive Fundraising Podcast, a show where we talk with fundraising leaders and thinkers to uncover how today's top nonprofits craft remarkable donor experiences and build lasting relationships at scale. On this episode, I sit down with Sherry Quam-Taylor. She's the lead and principal consultant at Quam-Taylor, and she's dedicated her entire latter career focused on helping nonprofit leaders fully fund their missions. She now gets into the trenches with executive directors and chief development officers and directors of development to help them really understand what it's going to take for their organization to get fully funded and drive the the impact that they are demanded on to provide. And her philosophy focuses on this in-the-trench mindset from her experience of being a frontline fundraiser and helping to grow organizations' funding models. And so I wanted to bring Sherry on to really provide some practical tips on what she's seeing as she's shoulder-to-shoulder with nonprofit leaders during this critical time. Like, how do we think well about driving forward in 2020 and even begin to imagine what 2021 looks like for us? It's a brilliant conversation. So let's dive in with Sherry Quam-Taylor. Sherry, you work regularly with nonprofits, like as they're navigating transitions and changes or have reasons that they really need to grow and you're kind of like in the trenches with them for a very short period of time and really help them do that. But I know before that, like, you've been helping organizations for a long time to get you to the point that you can stand shoulder to shoulder with leaders for that 90-day period. I'm curious, like, what led you to this path? Like, why are you now a front lines, you know, war veteran with the nonprofits that are changing our world?
0: I love telling my story and and how I got here because... Frankly, sometimes I, I I look back and think, how did I how did I get here? How did I get on this journey? So you know, back in I mean, oh my goodness, over a decade ago, 2007, I had the opportunity to travel internationally with a friend of mine who had started a 501c3 here in the states, but they were doing work uh, actually in India, and uh, you know, I have one of those stories where it was just really a life changing trip for me in in many different ways. Um, Still impacts me today, but uh, you know, I I came back and was just super, super passionate about the work. And they were doing, uh, you know, anti-trafficking work and and orphan care, and um, I just really became, um, you know, just just all it kind of encompassed my whole life. And you know, I always laugh because you know, I was, I was so passionate about it. I was, you know, at the time working my regular corporate job you know, 40, 50 hours a week. And then I was also working then another like 40, 50 hours a week and nights and and weekends for this nonprofit as as they were starting up. And they were small, you know, they were bringing in about $300,000 a year. And finally they wore me down and I I joined them as their first uh, stateside staff member outside of the ED. And what was interesting, Noah, was that you know, so I, I I joined them in about 2010. And so, you know, those were not the best years also, you know, following 08, 09 uh, here in the U.S. And it was, you know, coming out of the recession. And I joined a nonprofit and joined a new sector and a new industry where uh, I really had little network and, and very few connections. But I I jumped in, just, you know, all in, right? And so, my passion and vision were super high, uh, and I wanted everybody on our train, but the problem was we still needed more funding, and we weren't fully funded, right? We were kind of one of those, we were struggling, to be honest. And you know, I, I quickly realized that um, fundraising was harder than I thought. Um, now, here's the thing. We, can, we learned how to fundraise. We learned how to do that, and you know, we, we tripled the revenue that year, which was crazy to a crazy wild ride. But what was crazy and what was kind of eye-opening for me was, or what was eye-opening for me was all of the systems and structures and processes and the way you really approach the operational and administrative side of your organization, and how that actually sets you up to grow your revenue and and grow your organization. And so, you know, there were many years early on when I really felt like, um, like me not having a, um, you know, a background in, in nonprofit or working in the sector was, was really a disadvantage. But I quickly realized that it actually was almost like a, a blessing that I didn't have some of those uh, kind of deep rooted misconceptions of the sector and Um, You know, we never really bought into that concept that nonprofits should be able to do more with less, right? Like that didn't make sense. And so we kind of, I guess, kind of bucked the system early and really embraced risk and tried new things and spent money on things that helped us make money. All these things that, um, you know, a lot of people told us not to do. We weren't too, you know, overly dependent on volunteers and, and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, we didn't take that advice. And I really think that looking back, I was, was almost honing the methodology that I teach nonprofits today. Um, you know, I was a real, I really studied how an organization is fully funded. And it blew my mind that, you know, the majority of nonprofits in America are under a million dollars. and But I knew they were doing awesome work. And so I really went on this journey to figure out how do you fund an organization? What does it take beyond learning how to you know, make an ask, right? And so I really feel like um, it was really a blessing to have that journey and have that you know, frontline experience because I've been in a founder or a fundraiser's shoes and um, really know the complexity and the, the journey they have to take um, to really move into a sustainable funding model. So it's, it's literally been the best journey. And, um, you know, I left that organization after um, three to four years, um, because I was talking to other, um, you know, nonprofit leaders, executive directors, development directors, who were also having some of the same challenges that, that we had just had and, and said, Hey, how are you, how are you guys doing this? And so I realized that, uh, I was really onto something and I had a unique perspective and a, a unique methodology to really come alongside leaders, um, to really show them how I had done this. And so I'm on year eight of my own business, uh, really just doing that, coming alongside leaders and really helping them see all of the healthy internal uh, processes that need to happen so that they can start moving into larger individual donations for their organization.
1: Ironically, I don't think we've talked about this, but I had a similar kind of like story as to how I got into the work, but it happened at 15 when I was traveling overseas as well. And we were in Romania actually uh, serving some uh, gypsy children that were kind of in a village that was like off-put in the back corner of a village that was kind of looked down upon. And we were walking back up and the kids asked if they could go back up to the top where our bus was. And I remember this girl that was in our group, this um, lady that was traveling with us was holding one of the kids and we got down and we get to the bus and we're saying goodbye and she dropped, like she puts the kid down and the kid's shoe rubs up against her pants and leaves like a mud mark. And the kids desperately all like in shock ran to her leg and tried to start cleaning her leg because they felt like they had done something wrong or that like they, that she deserved to be clean. And the irony of that visual that's like still stuck in my head is how like everybody in that scenario is just a person. like, And they felt like for some reason, because we came to help, we deserved better. And that wasn't true. And that's not true. Like our circumstances are what differentiate us, not necessarily like who we are as people. And that's kind of fueled my work that went into international development and all of that. But it is those stories. And I think that's like one thing that's so interesting, not only that I found through these interviews with consultants like yourself, Sherry, or others, but with all of us and even donors. Like the reason we're doing this work or what fuels our philanthropic efforts, whether and our purpose there, whether it's our work like you and I, or it's you know, we're in the trenches, like some of the people you work with and our clients here at virtuous. Or you're just a philanthropist that gives deeply. Like, it's all deeply personal and tied to stories. And I find it so yes. fascinating that, like, it's it's always there. And, like, it's almost yeah. our jobs even to, like, uncover that so that yeah. we can know that that's what's going to keep the fuel going, going forward. I know that's not all of what you talked about, but it's so important.
0: Yeah, you, know, you nailed it. And thank you for telling me your more of your story. You know, it's really the my favorite part of my job, you know like like you said, like my life was, I mean, every aspect of my life was changed by taking a trip to India and then taking a bunch of subsequent trips. And, um, you know, I was single at the time. I was like, Oh, wait, do I have to talk to the kids? Like, what's this going to be? Um, you know, here I am, you know, what, 13 years, 14 years later from my first trip and my two children are adopted from India. And, you know, now I'm married and it, it, like, it really changed every aspect of my life. But the best part of my job is To work with people, you know, like yourself, or like all these other amazing people who have founded organizations, who raised their hand and said, "Like I'm going to do something about this, and I'm going to learn how to do this, and I'm going to start an organization," and um, and that that passion, and to watch these subject matter experts or program or mission experts um, on a daily basis, and what I get to learn from people working in my own community or in the state, and the nation, <clears throat> is really one of the best parts of my job. Um, and just to be inspired, uh, it really makes me want to do, you know, an even better job because I've felt that. I've felt that that passion for, you know, probably a different mission, but um, I, I know how it fuels me. So I love that about our sector. It's really my, my fav- probably my favorite part.
1: Yeah, indeed. And I think like we have the privilege to steward those stories and not yes. only the story of the work that you know, uh, organizations are doing on the ground, which is kind of the story, the mission, the impact, but it's also stewarding the supporter story and why they give and what's personal about that. And I think the thing is, and you talk a lot about this um, right now, Sherry, is that like 2020 has upended so much, like Mm -hmm. deep upending of traditional fundraising practices, um, our strategies to to engage with donors. um, All of those things have been, our personal lives have all been upended. But the thing that hasn't changed is that the work that listeners of this podcast and the clients you have and the customers we have at Virtuous like the work that they're doing still matters and there's supporters that want to get involved with that. The challenge is, is the systems and the strategies we use to bridge that gap. And you said in your kind of the first answer to your question that like you realize the importance of like systems thinking and like how you go about something and how you structure something. And really, the what I call like the operating system or the OS of how you yeah. run your nonprofit organization, your development program is so essential. And so I'm curious your perspective on that. like, as you've been working with clients, not pre-Covid in the trenches during change, now you're working with them through a collective challenge. What are you seeing there? What are the common things that haven't changed? And what are you seeing now that needs to change as a result of where we're at today?
0: Sure. And you know what? And no, I always tell people that I probably would give you a lot of the same advice if we would have talked this time last year, right? Like some of this is like, yep, we should be doing that no matter what, because these are just great business practices that actually then lead to healthy businesses and lead to revenue generation. So I refer to nonprofits as as businesses. So Um, How
1: dare you, Sherry?
0: (laughs) I know, that's controversial. Um, And and I love the
1: irony that you're like, I would actually give similar advice and I am giving similar advice. So can you unpack that? Because I feel like, yeah, I feel like people are like, wait, you're a pre-COVID, post-COVID, <laughs> like you're still saying the same thing and preaching the same thing like tell me more
0: yeah it, it, but that really is i think kind of the key here like you know we know it's all these basic things like you know diversifying your funding and and um, all of these things but like it's never been more important and so you know I, I even said it already like this this concept of nonprofit should be able to do more and less like if covid can do anything for, for us like it's really debunked that right and so um, it was really interesting, um, even when I shifted from corporate to nonprofit, like I was, I'm way more of a uh, structure, process, discipline. Let's, let's just, oh, that's where you want to go. Okay. Here's the 412 things we need to do right now. And in this order on this budget. And so are you a
1: six Sigma person?
0: <laughs> I'm not, but it kind of, <laughs> it sounds I've been like accused it. <laughs> of that before. Uh, you know, I look at it as a positively, but, um, and I say that because for me, my approach and kind of, I think that surprises some people is I can teach anybody how to ask for money. Get the right tools in hand. Get comfortable. Get comfortable with your questions. And you know, anybody can be a. I'm doing air quotes fundraiser. Right. The key to being confident at the table. The key to attracting larger donors. Um, you know, being able to sit and have that business person to business person conversation and make a solicitation is really all the things that you're doing to shore up your organization from a planning perspective, from an investing perspective, from a budgeting perspective. Oh, I'd love to talk budgeting. Um, How, you know, from a, how are we talking about our programs? It's really way more of the like organizational and operational structure. And then I would say the leadership's Approach to planning and investing, and just comfort level with um, all of that type of stuff that actually sets you up to have a good fundraising strategy. And so I always say everybody at a nonprofit is a fundraiser, even if you're the bookkeeper, you're the ops person, you're HR, because fundraising is so dependent uh, on, on all of these areas. It's not a silo. And so organizations that I've been watching, uh, you know, who, who maybe have entered 2020 and have been really strong. It's because they were approaching strategy and planning, uh, integrating their entire development team into that so that they can be equipped when they're sitting down and talking to somebody who can give a six figure gift. And you really need to speak that investment level language. Right. And so I actually, f- I think sometimes, um, I see that some fundraisers or executive directors kind of avoid those conversations because it's like, well, what would I say? Um and I quickly go to, well, what does your plan and strategy say, right? Like, because that that actually dictates uh what you're going to ask or what you're going to talk about um, when you are having that investment level conversation with a donor who can give an investment level gift.
1: Indeed. And I think you as something else. It's, it's also like a dedication to the process and not just like how I feel about something. And I think that's a challenge because it's like, well, how do I approach this? Like, well, what are they feeling? And if we, if we kind of, it, 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 there is a, like an emotional layer there, but if we don't think about it as like, okay, well, what's, what do I need to do? What does this person need to do? How do we come to the table with like that, like generous assumption that like they're interested in supporting your cause and having those conversations, like, it's essential. But then on the flip side, in the operational side, Sarah Olivieri, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar yes, with her, but yes. she, I had her on the podcast probably months ago. And she talked about this, this whole idea that, like, having an operating system that's like, we're doing this so that we can do that, which then leads to this, and then we recycle back, and we learn, and we push through, is so essential to the fundraising process. But it's more operations yes. that enables fundraising. It's like fundraising ops or DevOps. Like... But it's so important for that to be strong, to be able to build sustainable right. mission impact. And that's you know, I, that's a huge challenge right now for a lot of organizations because they're realizing that that maybe wasn't in place. And that's right, why they kind of ca- were caught flat-footed a little bit.
0: I think you're right, Noah. I, I literally just today posted on LinkedIn. Uh, once in a while, I get on a soapbox over there. I kind of enjoy it. <laughs> um, but I was posting about uh, an area where I see uh, nonprofits get stuck and that's assuming that a volunteer can do a lot of these organizational or operational roles. And so don't hear me say, I don't love volunteers. I love volunteers. but there are certain roles they should and should not be doing. And so I, I things like you know bookkeeping and maybe more operational types of things, that's great when you get started and get kind of your feet on the ground and get moving. But for it to support Revenue generation for it to support fundraising, there comes a time where it's not suitable for a volunteer role anymore, and you've got to invest in that. And you've got to invest in professionals um, that actually can shore that up to a strong, you know, kind of solid groundwork, so that then it can actually then support the fundraising uh, processes that need to happen. And you're so right. My my phrase is always fundraising or development is discipline. You know, fundraising is less about, oh, let's that event or that activity or oh, it's giving Tuesday coming up. Again, important things. but it's really about getting into that rhythm and cadence of your annual fund donors and you know, what are you doing on an annual basis, quarterly basis, monthly, weekly, daily. And so I'm a disciplined person, you know, it's easy for me to say, but it's getting into these rhythms that actually then help you fundraise all year long and help you lead your donors all year long so that you can really help them say yes and hopefully give their best gift to the organization.
1: Yeah. And I think there's, there's a lot of um, discussion now, at least in the circles that I follow around this idea of like, how as nonprofit leaders, do we build resilience going forward? Like as we emerge from, you know, this, this very monumental moment, you know, in, in, in a lot of different ways, but especially for organizations where it's a big, you know, disruption to what they did and they were they're using this time to to kind of figure out what they need to do and we we get the opportunity really the pleasure to be able to work with a lot of organizations because we're helping them rethink how they how they implement platforms to support their processes and people like during this time and when i asked someone i was like hey why are you making such a big investment now he had already agreed to buy virtuous yeah like why now and he was like well You know, we plan on really rebooting our development strategy and bringing on more um, staffing again in September. We don't have events; we're not having our regular, you know, programming that we're doing. And so now's the time to really get our platform and processes in place. So when we bring people back into the equation, when we have that opportunity, we're ready to go. And it was this conversation all about resilience. In that, and I and I bring this up because it relates back to that idea of discipline. That like the preparation that's going into, like right now is going to help build that resilience into the future.
0: You know, an interesting question. I, I, I love this. I just got really excited to to sat up straight in my chair. Um, (laughs) The, what I want to say is I'm asked all the time, every week uh, from some, from some angle, you know, what's the most creative thing you've seen during this time? Tell me the most like, you know, jaw dropping, creative thing you've seen fundraisers do. I know what they're asking? Like, you know, I've seen creative things go on. But to me, the the thing I'm most impressed with, and like this this leader that you've just mentioned is a perfect example, I'm most impressed right now with the leaders who are saying, I gotta use this time to fix, I guess maybe I'll say, to, to start something new so that I do come out of this better and I can see our organization in a different future of funding or in a stronger position so to me the the creative thing right now that i would how I would answer that question if I was asked would be to me, it's that someone is being brave enough right now to say, we need help, uh we need to learn new things, we need to do things differently, and we're gonna invest money and time and energy and resources into it to do it because we're we're good business people and we're making strategic decisions to position our organization further down the road, and that to me is. I mean, that's a great leader, but that is going to get them further, you know, for the long run versus that quick creative fix that like, oh, it was great this month or this one little solution um that I think a lot of times in the sector we think, oh, that's gonna be the the silver bullet, and that there's way more um, you know, power in the long-term thinking, long-game thinking than obviously these kind of silver bullet ideas that sometimes work for a while, but they don't fully fund your organization year on year and really move you into a sustainable organization. So I'm so proud of leaders who have been able to use this time to really invest deep in their organization so that they can really have that better future of funding
1: yeah absolutely. And there's two books that I'm reading right now. Um, one is by James Clear called Atomic Habits. Mm. And he always uh, points to the importance of second uh, f- like second order effect thinking. like if I do this, what is actually the ripple effect versus like only focusing on if I do this, what's the output? It's more of like what does this unlock or what does this change? And the um the other one's by Dan Heath called Upstream. He he wrote helped write Made to Stick and a few others yeah, that are, yeah. you know, well, well spoken about. But he talks about this idea of like upstream thinking and how difficult it is, but how necessary it is to build long-term change. And he kind of tells this story that I've probably told before on the podcast, but you know, how there's like you know, they're in a river and they see a kid coming down the river like frantically trying to swim and catch it. And so they run in and grab the kid and pull him out. And then another kid comes down and they run in and pull him out. Another kid comes down. You kind of see where the story's going. Yeah. Yeah. And he turns around and he's like, and his buddy's walking off. And he's like, Where are you going? And he's like, I'm going upstream to figure out who's throwing all these kids in the water. <laughs> and I think that's a perfect picture in some ways that like, it has been uh, an unfortunate circumstance outcome, but it's a good thing, is that this moment of COVID where we said, hey, pause, everyone go home, we might see a decrease in activity, especially the frantic activities, which events, traveling, all of that. I heard a VP of development was like, the fact that we're not traveling all the time, it feels like we we have the right to slow down and we're being yes. we're, we're doing better at serving our donors because we're not like getting on planes and flying and making sure that we're doing this and that, like we're actually doing a better job at this. And it's like the fact that we can slow down enables us to almost get our head, you know, out of the urgency and look long-term. And I think you're right. Those are the courageous leaders that are thinking that way. It's it's hard. It's difficult. You might have to make short-term sacrifices, but the long-term impact is going to be huge.
0: Yeah. I think you nailed it. And I love, I, I just wrote down that, that book. I love this upstream concept and, you know, I see that in, you know, that analogy in budgeting, which is like always like, why are you going to talk about budgeting here? But to me that... We
1: just lost half our listeners.
0: Yeah. <laughs> hey, hold on here. Your budget makes you money. I'm telling you. But here's what I mean. Like, you know, oftentimes our budget is set or that number is set on, well, yeah, if we had the money, we would do this. So let's just let's just create that squeak by number, right? Like... I'll use round numbers and so I don't have to do math on a podcast. But, you know, well, we brought in a million last year. So, I mean, we'd love to do 1.1, but we'll see if we can. You know, versus looking upstream and trying to figure out why people are throwing kids in the river and saying, no, here's actually what we need to accomplish our mission. And so I find, I mean, I would probably say 99% of the time that organizations who come to me are not fully funded because they have not taken time to, or, or, or I say taken time, been given the pass, or, um, like yeah, let's let's create a growth budget. Let's see what that number is. And so, ninety-nine percent of people who come to me aren't growing their revenue because they actually aren't raising to the right number in the first place. And so I always ask, you know, when I meet with someone, what do you need? And it's, it's usually a very kind of reactive, you know, pulling kids out of the river, but we'd love to do this. We'd love to do this, but a huge growth move and a huge mindset shift has to happen in that planning and budgeting, uh, and comfort with investing in the organization, and planning to invest in not only your programs, that's the easy part, right? We all want to serve more and, you know, have more cities we're in or have more homes or whatever it is. But from an admin and ops perspective, like what is then the infrastructure you have to invest money and time and people into to make sure it can support your programs. And then obviously fundraising, like where do you have to spend money that helps you then raise money, right? And so, you know, if you're not investing or budgeting in all three areas of your organization, you will never grow and you will never then be able to create a real development plan that actually meets that need. So I love that to me, that upstream thing is a is nonprofit budget of really saying, uh, let's think upstream. And let's think about if, you know, in two years we want to be here, what do we, what are the things we have to start spending money on to shore up our organization to get to that
1: point? And I think, too, even if you're going to cut back on spending or defund, you know, various aspects of your organization, sometimes it's in an effort to regain money in mm-hmm. some ways and then decide what to do it. But I think you're so right. I think it's such a more disciplined process to say, hey, we're we're moving funding from this to this because it unlocks this, or right. we're going to be cutting back because then we're going to reinvest in this. And if those things are kind of presented in tandem, or hey, we're investing in this because that's going to unlock this, and and those tandem conversations almost increase buy-in too a little bit or yes. visibility into what's actually going on. It's not, hey, we need to cut expenditures at all costs. It's like, well, okay, well, what for? Like. Right. You know, like, what are we doing here? Like, just cut everything? Like, stop eating? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, like I just yeah, think about right. my own life and budgeting. And if we're like, hey, we need to stop spending money, it's like, like, how bad do we need right. to stop spending money? <laughs> like, right. like, what, what are we talking about here? Like, rice and beans only? Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. or are we like saying that? like,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> hey, we need to stop? You know, thumb ordering from Amazon right. every day? You know, type right. thing.
0: Right, and that gets back to that that misconception that we talked about at the top of the hour of it's okay. If your programs are not at 90%, you know, like it's okay if this year you plan to spend 70% on programs, if you can tell me why, if you can tell me because you're investing in these areas this year, because in two years you're going to be here. So, and I always feel like, you know, if we, if we pause a minute and really think about our individual donors, think about those donors who can make those investment level gifts, you know, these are entrepreneurs themselves. These are leaders of businesses. These are, you know, leaders in the community. This is their world. They understand what it takes to grow a business. And so what an opportunity to speak their language, get their insight, um, you know, kind of be transparent with them about some of the challenges you're facing or big decisions you have to make. What What a wonderful, exclusive, uh, kind of stakeholder conversation to have with a donor who really gets it um, and, and, and really values that you're being that transparent with them and really seeking their guidance as someone who's maybe kind of been in your shoes growing a business of their own.
1: Absolutely. And it reminds me of a um, what a longtime friend of Virtuous, um, Heather Hiscock. She runs yes. Pause for Change. Yes. Um, and she has that whole pause framework where she talks through like, using pause and in, in physical sense, but obviously each of the letters, it's, you know, represents something, but to kind of think pull back so that you can, you know, rattle forward. And I always have that visual of like Sonic the Hedgehog. Yeah. We're like, <laughs> Sonic spends so much time doing nothing. Like he's not moving, but he's building up energies, building up energies, building up energy so that he can explode forward and make a bigger impact. And there's so much truth in that where if we just stop, take a minute, and then be able to move forward more effectively. Every step we take is going to be better. And I kind of want to zoom back out, like zoom back in a little bit because we started this and this is what I appreciate so much about you, Sherry, is that like you stand in the trenches, you know, like shoulder to shoulder with executive directors and directors of development and leaders of nonprofits that are navigating these changes. And so to almost get a little bit more practical, like how have you seen or worked with nonprofits or maybe stories that you can tell? of what organizations are doing right now as they take this, you know, what we talked about and actually applied it. Because I want to end there. I think I want to leave with some practical and pragmatic approaches here.
0: I, I've, I've kind of, you know, I've done a gazillion uh, webinars and podcasts here in the last few months and I'm thankful for it. But, uh, you know, we, that's our, been our only uh, opportunity, right, to to have human interaction. And I've, I've loved on these to really share. Like, I, people are getting great gifts. People are getting the largest gifts of their careers you know that you know many clients are you know you know hundreds of new donors right and so um there are you know there are great things happening despite complete and utter uh you know acknowledgement that this is not you know we we really don't want to repeat this right this has not been our, our best year in many ways so i would say that my encouragement to people would be um you know if you have an individual giving program, if you have really honed in on those mid and major level gifts, um, you know, and it it seems very practical, practical, but don't go quiet, right? Um, You still have a need, even if you're not frontline, your mission still has a need and it is still worthy of being supported. And so I've really encouraged people to not make that decision for the donor, you know, a lot of people are early on, you know, I don't think I should be asking. It's a rough year. I'm sure that business owner is struggling. We don't know that, right? And so make sure you as the leader are not making those decisions for others who actually might want to still give to you during this time um, and can give to you. And maybe you're the one who's not um, kind of approaching them and, you know, just because you're feeling like this is this is not the time to ask. Um, I, I, I'm finding that it's quite the opposite. And then the other thing I would say is, um, you know, I just, you know, I, I, I teach a 90-day fundraising accelerator that helps people really get solicitation ready. And uh, one group who I've loved working with, um, you know, they are about a three million dollar budget, and you know, the majority, like 99.9 percent of the revenue, is government funds, and then um, foundation, uh, money that's, that's very restricted. It's very like contract based. And so they really hadn't ever had to do fundraising. And, um, I say they hadn't had to do it. However, they still struggled with cash flow. you know, tons of their funding is restricted, of course. And so they kind of come to year end and be like, Ooh, we gotta do payroll. We gotta, we don't have much of a reserve. And, um, you know, they didn't have, um, you know it's amazing what money in the bank time kind of gives you clarity on on growth and strategy and they didn't really they they didn't have the ability to do that because they didn't have any extra cash and so i've been working with them to say what does it look like for you to start a giving program right how do you start from scratch when you can only you know meet meet uh, on zoom with people and so you know they're starting it they're doing it and it really i think a big mindset shift from them was You know, you're not calling up somebody and, you know, asking them for money. You're literally doing step one. And you might ask over on step 22, but you've got to start today. You've got to start having conversations with individuals that are different and that explains what you need um, and that helps the donor understand what you need them to do. And so a lot of those organizations, and if you haven't, if you're listening to this and you haven't started um you know a real robust individual giving program i'll always say just just start with the connectors in your world start with the people who love you already who are really well networked and who can connect you to that next person who might then connect you to your donors and so you've got to continually be sharing your needs share where you're going all the wonderful things you're doing but don't forget you are the only person who can Share with that donor what you need, right? And whether it's, you know, we have a $500,000 need this year or we have a $5 million uh, you know, dollar need this year, you have to be the interpreter there. And so, you know, when, when most donors, it takes them six months, 12 months, 18 months to, to give that large gift, you've got to start today. So it, just have a conversation. Just share with them what you're doing and how amazing your mission is. and Just start. Just put one foot in the ring.
1: Sure. Always grateful for kind of the practical tips and just the stories that you bring from kind of those that trench level view, and just grateful for your continued leadership, especially as you serve you know nonprofits that tend to be underserved. You know those that are kind of just starting to grow and they're smaller and they're digging in and they're looking to 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 figure out how to scale their impact because the work they're doing matters. And so I'm grateful for our our friendship and partnership and your insights.
0: Thank you. No, I appreciate it. Appreciate the conversation.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Responsive Fundraising Podcast by Virtuous. Each episode we've designed to really give you the insights into the philosophy, process, and playbook of leading nonprofits so that you can grow giving and build deeper relationships with the people who matter most, your donors. And if you wanna dig further into Responsive Fundraising, we've actually put together an exclusive content pack Just for listeners of this podcast, if you go to virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, that's virtuouscrm.com slash podcast, you can download a content kit that includes the Responsive Fundraising Blueprint which outlines all of the strategies that are involved in implementing responsive fundraising. You also get the responsive fundraising playbook, which includes 20 plus plays, which are basically strategies that you can implement today at your nonprofit to become more responsive and ultimately raise retention and increase giving. We'll also throw in a bunch of other resources and content that is gonna be helpful for you as you think about how you're applying responsive fundraising at your nonprofit. And it's completely free. You can grab that at virtuouscrm.com/slash podcast.